This episode of the Best Seats Podcast is brought to you by, well, you. To learn how you can support the show, go to thebestseats.com slash Patreon. Once there, you'll learn how you can get early access to shows, ad-free listening, the ability to submit questions, comments, concerns, and more. Once again, that's thebestseats.com slash Patreon. But enough of that. On to the show. Welcome, 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 everybody, to the first ever episode 18 of the Best Seats Podcast. I am your host, Crawford McCarthy. Thank you, as always, to Allie Coyle for providing the music for the show. She will be a guest on an upcoming episode. Not really sure when. Still trying to lock that down. But in the meantime, check out her music at AllieCoyleMusic.com. She's pretty damn awesome. Uh, super excited about this episode. My guest this week is Chef Zach Gearson. Uh, Zach is actually formerly of Orange County. He moved to Florida just before kind of the pandemic started, as we will jump into in the uh, in the interview. But he's a wildly talented chef. He was running Journeyman up in Fullerton, which was one of my favorite restaurants and I think a super important restaurant um, for a, a myriad of reasons. But just a really great guy, extremely talented and extremely well versed in the industry. He's someone who has worked with some amazing people. He's done some amazing things um, and cooked some amazing food. Zach has a lot of knowledge and someone that I really respect his uh, position, the way that he speaks, his desire to kind of dig into information as deeply as he can and research and, and read and understand and just kind of view the world around him with whatever context he needs um, to understand different point of views and things like that. I wanted to talk to him on the show, even though he lives in Florida now, because he potentially will be back. He's running his new pop-up uh, restaurant, Sila. See you later, Alligators, the acronym for that. Uh, but just he has a great view and perspective on things. And I think that because he just recently moved, it's still pretty fresh to understand what it's like going coast to coast, seeing different industries in different coasts. Obviously, at the time of this recording, Florida had reopened a lot of things and then closed a lot of things as far as hospitality goes. So to talk about how not just Orange County kind of views from his opinion on, you know, COVID-19 and everything else that's going on surrounding, obviously, you know, protests and things like that. It's a really great different perspective to get. He's somebody that I respect a lot. Um, his presence can kind of still be felt through a lot of different chefs and people in Orange County, including Anthony Dismuke from a couple episodes ago, who's an episode you should definitely go listen to if you haven't already. Uh, but just somebody who I think is a great, great person to sit down and have a conversation with. So we're going to talk about a bunch of different things. We'll compare Florida, California, talk about coronavirus, talk about kind of history of food and, and culture and things like that. I really hope you'll enjoy this one, even though you won't be able to eat his food unless you're going to Fort Myers or he comes back, which he hopefully will for a pop-up with a couple of friends in the area. Um, but just a really great guy to learn more about the industry and yeah, give some good recommendations towards the end, including a couple chefs that you can listen to episodes on here. So I really hope you enjoy this episode with my friend, Chef Zach Kearson. Hello. Zach, what's up, man? Hey, hey, what's going on? Not too much. How are you? Good, man. Yeah. It's good to hear your voice, man. I miss you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for taking the time and sitting down to do this. Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, you're such a cool freaking dude. I, I can't think of many people to, to spend this kind of time with. <laughs> well, it's very nice of you. Um, so obviously this show is going to be a little bit different just from the start, uh, mainly because the podcast has been so focused on basically the Southern California market of hospitality, something that you are super familiar with. But now that you have relocated to Florida, which is something that we'll talk on in a little bit uh, to start a family and then obviously launch Silo, which we'll also touch on. I still wanted to get your perspective um, on basically just kind of the, the state of the world as it kind of would be from somebody who knows the market so well. So before we kind of jump into all the nitty and the gritty, would you mind uh, just kind of for the people who are listening that don't know you or aren't familiar with you uh, and shame on them if they're not, would you just kind of introduce yourself real quick and just give a little background on your career? Oh yeah, man. Uh, my name is Zachary Gearson. Uh, originally how Crawford and I met, I was the, uh, executive chef of Journeyman's Food and Drink in Fullerton at the uh, Hotel Fullerton. Uh, you know, CIA grad to, uh, 2013. Um, you know, born and raised in Florida, moved back. Now I have our, our restaurant, Restaurant Sila, is an alternative Florida-focused cuisine. Um, 
you know, I'm, I'm 5'4", 130 pounds, like long walks <laughs> on the beach. <laughs> so, obviously, Journeyman and what you did up there was, I would still argue to this day, one of the, I mean, obviously delicious and one of the best, as it was recognized, was it 2018 Restaurant of the Year? Uh, yes, uh, 2019 Restaurant of the Year by Orange Coast, but in 2018, uh, we were voted in Gaio as the top 10 best new restaurants in the country. That's what it was. Okay, I couldn't remember which your Gaio was and which one Orange Coast was. So obviously a prolific restaurant. Um, the importance of it, I don't think, can be stated enough. But as someone who kind of really cut his teeth in the Orange County market, um, and again, we'll, we'll kind of touch on what Florida's like because it's been so interesting watching all that. How has life been like for you? Kind of, you kind of got out and did this, got, you got to kind of do an Irish goodbye as you were leaving to start a family. Obviously, COVID 19 hits and shuts everything down. What's it been like for you in the process of moving and kind of leaving where you were established in Orange County and setting up a home in the middle of a pandemic? Yeah, you know, it was, it was scary uh, to say the least because we had all these plans to, you know, leave. I mean, we, we left um, a couple months earlier than we had originally anticipated. Uh, which was good timing for us. Uh, one was just like my, I wasn't really needed anymore at the hotel after we closed journeyman's. So that kind of gave us some, uh, some opening. Uh, but then as COVID hit, it just stuff started to shut down and, you know, we figured the safest place to be was going to be near family. Um, you know, so we had already planned on staying with my grandmother when we moved to Florida when we moved here. Um, and it just ended up becoming a lot longer stay once we got here. I mean, stuff just started shutting down left and right. And, you know, the stay at home orders and you couldn't do anything. So I did what everybody else did. And, you know, I started a garden and we started cooking at home a lot more um, and really took the time. I guess it was like a forced R&R, you know, I had to take the time whether I wanted to or not and just recuperate and relax and do stuff that chefs really for the, the I don't know, as years, it's tens of hundreds of years, as long as chefs have been around for the most part, we don't even give ourselves the opportunity to relax. There's no room for it to, to settle down and, and just take a breather because it's such a fast paced environment. So COVID certainly, forced a lot of us to do that and it helped kind of really realign priorities when it comes to family and work um and and self-worth once you really are forced to sit in the house all day with yourself and with family or with your significant other you start to learn a lot more about yourself because kitchens have become at least from a cook's perspective kitchens are a respite from the rest of the world and from everyday life. And we get in there and we become so enamored with the plates that we're making or so wrapped up in our technical skills or new dishes that we often forget that just living life in general has to have a little bit of balance and can't be in the kitchen all your life because then you know, what are you really cooking for? That balance is out of sync and it's just, it's just been really weird. And then when we moved and everything being shut down, it put us behind like three months minimum. You know, we were supposed to come down here. We had a handful of places set up for uh, pop-up dinners and, you know, we had farm tours set up and I had meetings set up with uh, University of Florida, like professors to like have this conglomerate of people that were focused on, you know, Florida history and cuisine mm -hmm. that we were just going to hit the ground running. And, you know, then all of a sudden nobody's, nobody's holding meetings. Nobody wants to meet in public. You know, everything is zoom conference calls and it just became very disconnected for a while. So I, I tuned it out for, you know, the first two months and planted a, probably 20 different things in the garden and corn and sunflowers and tomatoes and herbs and really just kind of sat back and was evaluating whether or not the world even needed 
Sila. Sila is a, it's not a, I'm not a necessity. I'm a commodity. I'm, I'm, I'm just something that you can take or leave. If, if Sila or me cooking didn't exist in theory, you know, it's not going to make the world a worse place, yeah. you know? So you really have to sit there and you have to see value in yourself and what you're doing. And, you know, the, the whole COVID experience, if you will, really sent, you know, me, you can, you know, talk to Olivia and, you know, my, my emotions were on a roller coaster between, should I even do it? You know, should I even continue to be in the restaurant industry? Because unless I'm constantly creating and making new stuff, sometimes I feel like, uh, you know, I, I should be doing something else. And maybe Sila was never meant to be uh, a physical restaurant. Maybe it was meant to be an idea that inspired, uh, you know, provoked thought. Um, but then, of course, you come around and you see, you know, in my world, I really love to touch people. And I love to touch, you know, the minds and the hearts of, of those who get a chance to dine with me, whether it's at my house or at a restaurant or at a pop-up. Mm -hmm. And you always think about how, especially considering the state of the world as it is now and so much uncertainty and unrest and, and people are scared and people are, are, are angry and sad. How do you, how do you change the world? And that just is like, you just start with the people that are around you. And so as I started to think about it that way, you know, if I wanted to change the world, the way to do it was through Sila, through cooking. Yeah. And so it kind of helped me, you know, ease back into it. And now here we are, you know, getting started. So it's, that's a super interesting thing that you said about, you know, you have that question of yourself, is it even needed? And I remember the amount of articles that I saved kind of op-eds from chefs and stuff like that has just been kind of monumental during this whole time. And, uh, uh, was it Gabrielle Hamilton put out a piece talking about her restaurant in, uh, Manhattan, uh, prune for those that yeah. don't know, prune has been an institution of Manhattan for many, many years. Um, if you have Netflix, you can go on and watch mind of a chef. I think it's still available at the time of this recording and watch her series about prune and kind of her mentality about that restaurant. But she wrote a piece essentially saying, I had to close my restaurant and I don't know if the world needs it anymore. And it's been yeah. a very interesting thing to watch some people grapple with um, because, again, through the, I wasn't even going to, this podcast was supposed to launch in March and then we got locked down. So, of course, outside of a couple episodes recently um, about Black Lives Matter movements and things like that, this is all about been how people have been handling it during COVID and, you know, what does the future look like and how certain is it? And it is a very interesting thing to think about. Do we need, some of these restaurants should chefs, like you said, obviously the conversations about mental health have been coming back and forth um, for years and they're long overdue in doing so. But the universal sentiment that I've gotten from a lot of the people I've interviewed has been, it was a forced vacation. And, you know, until you had to worry about the financial responsibilities, it was welcome because I think being able to right. step away was really good for a lot of people. Um, What's it been like being in Florida, um, a place that's kind of been a case study as far as the media is concerned, as a place that opened and that has recently had to close in some respects following the pandemic? Dude, that, that answer is so, so multifaceted. You know, like you can sit there and you can see people who are out and about and they're not wearing masks and they're, they're very free and people are giving hugs and, you know, high fives and handshakes. And it's like, you know, like COVID never existed. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, there are people who will refuse, absolutely refuse to go near anybody in public and, uh, just kind of demonize anybody who in, in their own accord decides not to wear masks or gets too close to people. And it's, it's hard because it. <sighs> You, you read so many different articles and I've, I've been reading and it's almost like everybody has become a, a, a professional COVID examiner because, you know, one side of the spectrum is masks are a hundred percent necessary. And then the other side of the spectrum is you have people posting articles. I just read one uh, from OSHA 
who, you know, pretty much states that all the masks that we've been wearing, even if it's the N95 or a cloth mask that your grandmother made at home, none of them are even supposed to be worn during a pandemic. Like, it doesn't matter. You're still going to get sick regardless, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, I, I, I choose not to say what I feel because I can't, I can't really back it up. You know, there's, there's yeah. not even the CDC, not, they don't even know. You know, like Fauci wants to say one thing and then down the road, he says like, you know, masks maybe aren't really necessary. And then we're just all kind of left to our own devices and seeing like, if you feel comfortable wearing a mask, wear the mask. If you don't, you know, then you're, you're alienated because you're a, 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 what do they call You choose not to to see scientific fact and you know, you see that a lot around here. Um, a lot of restaurants opening, um, and everybody's at a hundred percent capacity. Now you see, I mean, people are shoulder to shoulder at the bar. Some, some staffs aren't wearing masks. Some staffs are wearing masks and gloves and some places have wipeable menus and some places have disposable menus and some don't. Um, I mean, there's just such a broad spectrum of things happening. I've, I recently ate at a restaurant uh, a few weeks ago and had drinks and everything, and they were doing everything, I mean, at least outwardly from a guest perspective, mm-hmm. uh, everything technically sound. You know, the guests were all separated on their own tables. The tables were being wiped down as we were waiting. We saw them sanitizing it. Uh, they were sanitizing the menus. The, the the employees were wearing masks and gloves. They were doing curbside takeout if you wanted it. Um, inside, they, they had like a bar and everything inside. All the bar stools were uh, put up and away so you couldn't sit at the bar. Like they were doing everything the right way based on what we've been told to do. And then I see a post not just a few days ago that they they closed down because one of their employees tested positive. Yeah. You know what I mean? And who knows how, how long ago, like, is it for, it's a 14 day incubation period. So they were asymptomatic and they did this and that, and you can spout out all those, the terminology that every post on social media tells you to think about and talk about, but who knows if they were being, you know, in their own, if outside of work, so there's so many different levels to it that it's like, unless you just shut down the country, I mean, there's, it doesn't really seem a way you lock everybody in their house and just wait for 14 days and everything just comes to a screeching halt at one point. I mean, how do you, how do you fix it? You know, I know it's, so that's what it, we're seeing here. It's a hard question because we've seen the same thing here where you had restaurants that would wait and wait and they weren't even doing takeout and then they would open and again, wiping down everything, double mask, gloves on employees, the whole nine yards. And then it turns out that the half the staff test positive and they have to close down and do this entire thing. Uh-huh. So now obviously the state regulations state to state are different and everybody's kind of handling it by the seat of their governor's pants. Uh, right. But as far as a restaurant having to handle it, I, I'm of the mindset and again, if people want to open for business, that's their prerogative. I mean, that's the right to, you know, if you run a business, you have financial investments in it. Obviously, you never want to see anybody destitute or hurt fiscally. But in the world of hospitality, especially, you know, as a chef and as somebody who's run incredibly hospitable restaurants and is kind of known for outstanding service, do you think that restaurants have a responsibility to kind of take those extra steps, like you said, even if you do run that risk of kind of exposure? Or do you think that it's, okay because of the information being all over the place that some restaurants can open at that kind of shoulder to shoulder, you know, three deep at the bar mentality, as opposed to the you know six foot between tables. I think, and this, this is probably going to be like a very divisive thing among my peers. You know, if a restaurant can choose not to open that they have for whatever reason, the loans are helping them or no, cause they have to hire their staff back. You know, it's, if, if a restaurant has the ability to not open, I would say to just wait. I would, I would really encourage them to because what I've been seeing is a, just a lot of uncertainty with guest dynamic. Uh, you know, they don't want to go out unless they, they know in their hearts or at least they believe in their hearts that 
there's absolutely no way for them to get sick. I think if restaurants do 100% unequivocally want to open and they're very, very against, personally against the masks and the gloves and everything, that they should really reconsider because remember opening up a restaurant has nothing to do with the people running it, right? The restaurants are supposed to be for the guests. Mm -hmm. And so far what we've seen is a lot of guests, especially in our, our demographic here, um, the ones that go out often, they like to see it. They like to see the masks. They like to see the gloves, whether it's a subconscious protection, um, or they, they feel generally safer. Um, you know, it's our, it's our responsibility as restaurant operators to make our guests feel safe. Yeah. How we do that, you know, like I've seen one of my, one of my buddies did a a poll uh, on social media and I want to say over 60% of the people said that they were okay going to a restaurant where the employees were not wearing masks and gloves. You know, they just, I think they were just so over it, you know, Mm -hmm. but how many of those people actually go out to restaurants on a weekly basis and become a main source of revenue for a business like ours? You know, some people might go out to eat only when it's their birthday or special occasions. So I don't know, man, you know, I could sit here with you and, and this could be a three or four hour conversation breaking down, you know, days of the week to dine, you know, <laughs> like, you know, like if you don't want to wear uh, a mask and you want the employees to be all open and free, you know, come in on Tuesdays and Thursdays and then Thursday nights, Tuesday nights, we sanitize the whole restaurant. And then Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, we do our mask and glove service. Like, I mean, yeah. Which I was literally thinking, yeah, it's going to be Tuesday, Thursday. That's no mask day. (laughs) Yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's just so convoluted, man. I, um, I, I have done a private dinner for, uh, about 10 people Mm -hmm. a a few weeks ago. And I specifically asked them, you know, would you like us to wear uh, gloves and mask? And they said, no, um, we would not, you know, we feel like it's not really necessary. Um, we trust your guys' cleanliness and we brought them just in case. Yeah. Uh, we wore gloves the whole night because that's what we were touching. Um, you know, everybody's temperature was fine. Nobody was, you know, overheating, no, like no coughing or, you know, the the symptoms or whatever you, whatever you want to call them. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and they, they specifically said, no, we don't want you to wear that stuff. So it's like, and it was for their family. It wasn't just a bunch of strangers. So, that was kind of on them as well. So I don't, I don't know, man. I, I don't want to say yes or no, because it's just so uncertain. Not even the people who were taking a lot of directives from, they can't even agree. If you wear a mask for six to eight hours, you're going to be, uh, you're going to fall victim to pleurisy, yeah. which is uh, like inflammation of the lungs from, you know, breathing in your carbon dioxide pretty much. Or, you know, like, I don't, <laughs> It's, it's just so weird. Then you see a video of a doctor wearing a mask, timing himself for, you know, 20 minutes, riding a little bicycle um, and saying that he doesn't feel any different and that his O2 sats are perfect. So there's definitely not any kind of concrete thing. And the opinions obviously are all over the place. Um, and ultimately, it, it just kind of comes down to individual decision. But let's let's talk about something a little more concrete, which is I think, and, and you kind of talked about people that interact with their restaurants, but maybe these are, you know, they're only at that restaurant three times a year. So they're more kind of casual diner, um, the type of right. people that probably don't even know that this podcast exists. But if you do, hey, welcome. Glad to have you. Um, I, yeah. I think there's a lot of cost with reopening a restaurant for business that people don't understand. As someone who knows your way around this industry, you know, better than most, can you kind of give a little insight? I mean, things like, you know, if you're going to reopen a restaurant, you've been closed for two months, your food costs, you know, if you're doing beverage and you have to get beverage costs. I mean, I think that there's a lot of people like, well, why don't they reopen? You know, they can do takeout, they'll survive. That may not be the case. Can you give a little kind of insight to that for people that don't really understand the financial back end? 
Yeah. So, I mean, let's say, uh, you know, I've been closed for a few months. Obviously the only food, if I have any, is going to be frozen. Mm-hmm. Um, and ideally, uh, right now I've seen a lot of restaurants, uh, trying to save more frozen food because some of it is a little bit more expensive, but lasts longer. So it spreads a little bit of the cost out over some time, but you know, I need to, I need to buy all fresh product. So that's going to cost me, you know, depending on the size of my restaurant, a few grand right there. Um, I'm paying my rent still because it hasn't, doesn't really seem that there's a lot of rent that are being abated and, and, pushed off and even still if it's getting pushed back a few months until we're at a hundred percent capacity, I still have to pay it back. Yeah. So now I've got back pay rent, uh, which could be, you know, in some places that it's really, really, really good is like $18 a square foot. Um, and if you, you, you do the math and you figure out your square footage and then you times that, you know, by 12 and that gives you like this annual rent cost. So like $18 a square foot is really great especially if it includes any of your common area maintenance fees. Um, But there are places that are sitting upwards of like 22 to $25 a square foot. And when you have a place, uh, my buddy's restaurant is 1700 square feet. Um, You know, and that sounds like it's a lot of space, but his restaurant seats, you know, 30, 35 people. That's on the smaller side. Yeah. And that's on the smaller side, you know? So now you take into account that, I've got my rent, I've got my food costs, I've got my electricity and my gas and my water bill. I've, I've been only allowed to seat 50% capacity. Um, the way that we break down our, our, our averages, our break-evens, is we look at how many people on average we want to uh, seat during a certain dining period. And so we, we get all of our costs. We divide those by the number of services. We break down the number of services by how many guests we intend to serve that day. And that'll tell us roughly, in general terms, how much money we need to have the guests spend when they visit us. You know, so what we call like our, our, our seat costs or our per person uh, revenue or any of those kind of terminologies. And so we say, you know, in some places, you're looking at that restaurant needing to make 50 to, to 60 bucks a person. Smaller restaurants are kind of succumbing to a little bit higher per person costs if they choose to limit their services to, you know, 30 people or 40 people a night, you know, and they still have to pay all the rent. Places that do higher volume of guests, they can kind of, break that down a little bit. If you do 200 covers, I'm sitting there and I can probably average at $25 per person that I would need to make because I'm serving 200 of them. Um, and so when you have these, these demands to cut, um, capacity now to, in order to pay just the the basic cost, I've got to make roughly a hundred dollars, let's say per guest. Um, having the takeout doesn't really help because there's a subconscious belief that like takeout food shouldn't cost that much. Yeah. Um, but on, and, and some restaurants have been able to battle this and I haven't really been succumbing to any of that cause I don't have a physical space anymore. Um, but if you're expecting a restaurant to serve restaurant quality food to go, you still kind of got to pay for it because you're going to have to pay for the cooks to show up and do the amount of prep. Uh, you got to think that it might cost actually a little bit more depending on how many boxes have to be divided up um, in order to make that, that, uh, that to go food work plus the bags, plus having the interface in order to do the uh, contactless pickup, if you will. And I need to have a couple service staff because I have one person or two people, depending on how busy we are going out to the vehicles. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I have to have somebody who's managing the phones and the orders and then the cooks cooking it. Uh, you know, we're using much more uh, gloves and papers uh, and to go napkins. So now our, our dry goods costs are like our paper product costs is going up. Uh, well, before we could just throw our plates in the dishwasher and, 
it, it's a minimal cost when divided by X amount of plates. So, I mean, it just, it, it looked like something that was like, oh, you know, restaurants are going to be able to survive because they can just do to-go food. Yeah. Well, people aren't sitting down. What, what they don't realize is that that bottle of wine that you caught, that you bought when you were getting dinner, dude, thank you. You just helped me pay just a little bit more that evening to have an extra staff member on for two hours. Cause we had to clean, you know, the, and then at the end of the day, that restaurant is still probably only taking home eight cents, 10 cents for every dollar that is spent. And that's at, in profit. Yeah. But now that I'm reopening, getting all my staff, uh, maybe I'm running short staffed and my guys are getting, you know, tired and they're breaking more stuff because, you know, so and so decided to go out and maybe they got sick. Uh, who who knows? There's just so many variables that we pay for in the long run that we still have to pay for when restaurants are are struggling to get guests back in the seats. Um, that it's just it looks like some places are doing really really well. I mean, we think about uh, on our side is uh, Daniel Hum. I mean, he was, he was donating a lot of his food, but it looked like that he was, he was kind of setting the, the tone for a minute doing to go food. He had all his staff there and he was doing thousands and thousands of meals and he just shut the doors. Yeah. The number one restaurant in the world a few years ago just shut its doors because it just couldn't keep up with the bills. You know, that, that just goes to show you the sustainability of restaurants at that level. The restaurants that are still able to serve a ton of people and do it well, they're going to survive. So you do have some mom and pop shops that are actually making the adjustment and they're, they're working it. They're doing the dining. They're still doing the to go. That's kind of keeping at bay any of those, uh, unforeseen debts that come from being closed for a month or two. Um, but yeah, man, I, I don't know this, the costs definitely sneak up on you. Uh, one of the things that's been cool to see, at least here in California, and I'm sure Florida has done, if not similar things, kind of things like it is some of the positives that have come from this, which I know is a weird thing to say being in a pandemic when you are watching people like Daniel Holmes restaurants close, um, and others that have been just as kind of shocking. I know some of the like Auburn up in LA and a bunch of other ones that you just never saw coming. Um, yeah. We've got Alfresco dining, which is big now. I know Laguna beach has completely closed off one of their one way streets to turn it into patio dining, uh, the ability for places to sell alcohol to go. Do you think that there's going to be any positives from all this that could stick around that could in the long term help out restaurants like the ability to kind of push tables further out uh, and some of the, like the, the different ABC laws and things like that? Yes, absolutely. I absolutely think that um, as far as positives that you're talking about, that would be that would be one of them is the alcohol to go. I think as soon as that started, everybody was fighting uh, for that law to be changed just in general, even when COVID disappears or goes away or the or we get a, a, a vaccine or whatever. Um, so that would be interesting to see, you know, having, and you know, very well, my buddy, Stephen Hayden, mm-hmm. um, you know, that would be really great to see somebody like him or, or, or Ravin, uh, you know, over at CDM to continue running down that path and be able to take what they do so well behind the bar, bottle it and let people take it to go. Cause I can't tell you that I'd be upset if I was able to have some of Ravin's cocktails bottled up in my refrigerator. <laughs> uh, you know, like just show me how to smoke it, dude, <laughs> give me a smoking gun and I'll just, I'll just wave it over the glass or something, you know? Um, so I think that's really, really cool. And it opens up, um, opens up another stream for the, the bartenders and the mixologists to be created themselves. Cause chefs have kind of gotten the spotlight for so long. Now I think that's going to open them up for something interesting that we'll be able to see in the future. If it continues that way. Um, Alfresco dining, man. Uh, I have lived in Florida and California for most of my life. So it's never really been anything that's different. Just seeing more of it mm-hmm. is pretty cool. 
it's pretty humid here. So I kind of choose to eat inside whenever I can. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's cool because I think it just makes people feel more out in the open and connected. Uh, what I've really liked seeing is that the people who have taken the time, excuse me, to reevaluate their business plan and how to take care of their guests, you can really see the hospitality come out in them. Yeah. You know, seen the resilience of the restaurant industry and I think it's just something that we should all be super proud of um, that, you know, like how, how can you see an entire industry shift gears in a matter of a week or two and still continue to take care of, of our communities, of, of, the, of the guests who have supported us for so long and we were able to continue to take care of them and show our love by cooking for them no matter what, if we have to deliver it to you, if you have to pick it up in your car, masks or gloves, uh, partitions, you can see just the, uh, I mean, who, who just did it? Uh, Gino at OMG yeah. built his own, you know, glass partitions himself to make people feel comfortable on their reservation just so they could come in and eat and still be with him. Um, and he could have, he could have, Awesome, I'm sure, but you know, just like the level that all these restaurateurs and these managers and these business owners have gone through, um, just to make sure that their guests feel comfortable no matter what. And that's, I mean, you're really seeing the true spirit of hospitality kind of shine in some of those instances. And then being able to watch chefs, um, like, like even my, my buddy here, um, take, donations and then turn that into uh, meals to, to bring to the hospitals for the people, you know, who are working on the COVID floors mm -hmm. to have something to eat, ma'am, because I've heard some, some wild stories. I know nurses and doctors in general are just beasts when it comes to stuff like that. And in, in the first place, um, but now to be thrust into this, this COVID experience i keep on saying that i don't know the, what way to say it um well we're 34 minutes in and we haven't said new normal once apart from that so so far we're on a good yeah. track you can call whatever you want but we're not doing that <laughs> i will I, I refuse to say those two words together that's that's another conversation um but yeah you know and, and these guys are working 16 18 20 plus hours without meal breaks yeah um so, you know, just to see how one of the toughest industries in the world is able to just keep fighting through it and, and adapting to each challenge every time it comes, um, I think is just something very, very special. And it, it's one of those things that I love to read about and I love to watch. And it hurts when I see restaurants close, but in my heart, in my gut, my instincts tell me like, those, those people that are closing their restaurants, they're still going to do something, man. They're, they are some unstoppable beings, you know, Gabriel Hamilton, Daniel Hum. They've gotten this far. Um, I'm sure there's only greatness, you know, down the road for them, no matter what. As somebody who is set up, uh, because Sila is going to be more of kind of that nomadic pop-up style of experience, correct? For now. For now. Uh, for now, yeah. But as somebody who doesn't currently have a brick and mortar location to worry about, um, even if it's, you know, for now and there will be doing one down the road, are you in any kind of a better position than someone who does have a hard restaurant to get Sila going? Because it's going to be, again, that pop-up experience versus a traditional kind of with all those other costs that we kind of mentioned earlier. Absolutely. You know, um, you know, I, I'm not paying, and, and technically I'm not paying a physical rent. There's a, a commercial kitchen incubator space that I just started renting out. Um, that is like a shared kitchen. And so, um, I do pay rent monthly for that, but it's nowhere near some of the rents that other places are paying. And so like being a pop-up and being kind of my own personal brand and having the mobility that we have, um, I'm certainly, certainly in a far, uh, safer, position with my business because 
I can choose when to do dinners, when not to. Um, each one can be modified for space, size, location, um, you know, the types of menus, everything. I got so much freedom. Um, but on the flip side, it's, my, it's one of my only sources of income. So if I don't continue with it, um, then I would have to kind of be held down to another job that has, uh, more strict guidelines of possibly closing if something were to happen. So I want to dig into Sila a little bit more and kind of transition into that because that's going to kind of carry over to the other kind of questions that I have for you. Um, you did do, Sila did Grace Orange County once. You did put on a dinner by Sila right before you left at the table for 10 event. I still have that menu. I didn't get to experience it, but I kind of got to watch it from afar and look at the menu items and, and taste some of the products that were you, uh, you were using. Can you kind of really quickly just give the kind of philosophy um, of what Sila is and kind of its mission statement? Yeah, so uh, Sila, what we say is an alternative Florida cuisine uh, restaurant. Um, we are looking at historical context and cultural references as an inspiration to do our own type of food. And so we we were saying that like we we don't want to do Florida cuisine because it's already it's already done, man. You know, Florida Florida is Cuba, Florida is Puerto Rico, Florida is is you know, West Africa, Florida is, is Southern cuisine. And, and it's, it's so many things There's me Mexican cuisine and, and Caribbean, Jamaican, Haitian. I mean, you just keep on throwing it out there. We have one of, I don't want to say the most, but arguably one of the most culturally diverse states in the country. And so that would be Florida cuisine and that doesn't need to be touched. But if, if we lived in a, in a alternative, uh, parallel universe where cuisine changed up a little bit. That's what Sila is going to be using those as inspirations for things that people know to introduce them something that they wouldn't actually uh, know or get at a normal uh, Florida Caribbean restaurant. So one of the, you talk about kind of the history of it and the inspirations behind that, obviously at the time of this record and the other thing that's going on right now that nobody can ignore is black lives matter movement. Um, all of the push for you know, racial injustice reform and things like that. And the conversation that's now starting to emerge, um, especially given what's recently happened with food media with regards to, uh, Bon Appetit and kind of other outlets like that is there's a major resurgence and refocus on black cuisine, but also just its historical context as it, kind of has ingratiated into what we think of as American cuisine, but it basically is kind of how it started, um, all of that. What's it like when you're talking about something like Sila, looking at all those historical references, and you talked about all the different cultures that make up what is Florida cuisine, but what's it like with Sila kind of now with this new focus of kind of the history of food? Has that changed kind of the way you're kind of conceptualizing your meal plans at all and kind of how you do menu prep and research? So it, it certainly has changed, um, you know, how we do our research because there are things that, that we have learned or that we see that continue to grow out of the research that are, are spider webbing into these new ideas. Um, you know, it, when, if you want to talk about it in context to the, the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement and how Sila would be affected with it or, or changed or, or influenced by it. Um, this, this is a, is a story that we've been trying to say is important before. We, I mean, what we, we developed Sila uh, last August before COVID and, and before the, 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 the black lives matter protests and all this is happening. And we've been saying that this is important knowledge for people to have in general anyways. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know, who am I to be some, some white punk ass kid coming up, trying to talk about, uh, uh, African-American influence in cuisine. I don't know. Maybe I'll, I'll, you know, get skewered for that down the road, but that's, I'm not worried about it because I'm not trying to take it over. I think it's so incredibly interesting and beautiful to see these cultures and to be influenced by them um, 
that, that I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't want to say that, you know, they, they should or going to, or, or have to, or may or may not support it because, um, I don't know. I, I, I just think those are the beautiful things about that, that culture, the African-American culture. And I think what they're asking for right now, um, man, I, I, if I say much, I'm going to be skewered on either side, but I, I, I really don't <laughs> fucking care. Um, I, I think it's important what they're doing. Um, I, I think it's really, really special to see it happen. And I've seen uh, so many friends of mine who have gotten their, they, they feel like their voices are being heard now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of them who are, who are my friends have been ex uh, students or, uh, or employees of mine who are becoming their own and, and growing into this and seeing how special they really were um, when they were under, like when I was working with them, I mean, how special they are now and they feel like they're being heard. And it's almost like being like a dad, you know, and your, your kid starts to get the twinkle in their eye that they're, they're special too, you know, not special only, right? Like let's, that's, that's that whole delineation. Um, Mm -hmm. they're special too. They, they deserve respect too. They, they, they are unique in their own way. Um, and when they started to really come out, I can't tell you that I didn't get goosebumps and, and excited. Um, and that's, that was kind of like, that's where Sila lives, man. You know, that's where restaurant, I think pure, honest restaurants and restaurateurs have always believed what the black lives matter. I don't, I don't know. There's a separation between the people who actually run the black lives matter. And then the people who are just saying that black lives matter. I don't, I don't know all of that. There's too much cloudiness surrounding some of it that no, I, I'm a, I, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely speaking about it in kind of that grand, that, that that uh, that kind of that meta term of it. We're definitely kind of, there's so many delineations and different routes that we could go down that, you know, this yeah. would be a, a 97 right. hour podcast. So I, it, all good. Exactly. You, you don't, don't worry exactly. about differentiating. Uh, yeah. So I, I think it is special. If you, if you go to just about every kitchen that fucking exists, I'm sorry, I'm cussing if Adam, you can bleep oh, me no, out. No, 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 you're good. Of, there's no bleep. You yeah. say whatever the fuck uh, you want. Okay. Um, you know, you go into any kitchen you're going to see Guatemalans, Mexicans, Haitians, you know, uh, you're going to see Italians and Greeks and Spanish and, you know, you're going to see a lot of different cultures thriving. You're going to see an Indian, you know, maybe foreign exchange student at a nice restaurant. And then, you know, a Korean uh, cook here and then a Japanese cook there. And then, you know, the Korean cook might be hanging out with the Mexican cook and showing them how like a Mexican cook could use mm-hmm. uh, a cabbage and make kimchi, but with Mexican ingredients. And all of a sudden you have this beautiful melange of, of cultures. Um, and I say that because like, when we talked about earlier about changing the world and you starting with the people closest to you, that's, that's why it's become very hard for me to just like go on social media and just be like, Oh, you know, black lives matter. Oh my God. You know, like you're, you're cool too. And Oh, let me support this because all that becomes is a post. Yeah. You know, and my, and my followers, they may like it. They may comment on it. They may think that I'm doing it for marketing purposes or that I'm doing it for my own gain or that I'm doing it because I actually believe it. I don't fucking care what they think. And that's why I just stopped all of it. And I decided to make it about, if you know, if you join my team and you are cooking with us or you come within the vicinity that my voice can reach. So this podcast is that vicinity that I stand with them. I, I believe what they said. I've had people ask me if Sila was a physical restaurant and it were to get burned down or, or, or looted, would I be upset? <sighs> I can't tell you that I would, man, because you're, you're talking about a group of people who have been fucking telling you that they wanted a seat at a table. Mm-hmm. They just decided because they didn't get a seat at the table, they just decided to destroy the table. Now nobody gets to sit at the table and we're all equal fighting for our own rights now. You know, that's, that's kind of how they're like, look, we're just going to take it upon ourselves since nobody wants to fucking listen. Well, now we have to listen. That's, that's like, that's powerful. 
when you when you have caused an entire nation or entire world to to listen, we, we don't have a choice anymore, Crawford. You know what I mean? Like, oh, absolutely, it is there. So now there are the people who are listening, or there are the people who are deciding to look away. You, <laughs> the voice is loud enough that you can't say that you didn't hear it. No, absolutely. now you're either absolutely. looking one way or the other. With regards to and, how, um, oh no, sorry, keep going. No, no, I, I just wanted to you know, like to to emphatically say how special it was because you know we you and I both we see, and I'm strictly speaking from restaurant industry, but I follow a lot of chefs from around the world, and you see posts about it. You see them doing stuff mm-hmm. when your movement has gone international when the entire world is starting to look at themselves in the mirror and see that this is something that we have to address, my fucking gosh, they should feel so proud of themselves. Yeah. You know, that's, I mean, that's, that's really all it comes down to. And they're still going how they're doing it and what they're doing. You may or may not agree with on every level, but the general consensus is it's about damn time. Completely. As it relates to the kitchen and to food, I think that there's a difference between obviously education and appropriation. And I think that you're starting to see that with kind of the respect to those historical cuisines and not just the cuisines, but the people too. Um, The number one thing that kind of came out of a lot of this was, hey, here's our list of all these black owned businesses. And I thought that that was a great initiative until I'd looked at it a little deeper and people made a great point. They're like, why did it take this? that list to exist? Why did it take this for these things to exist? And I think in food media, especially because, you know, the the concept of bringing people around a table to break bread, whether they agree or not, you can still share that meal and have that conversation, Um, which again, I think, you know, we're just like two weeks or so past the anniversary of Anthony Bourdain's death. That was something that he was so monumentally successful at was enlightening people to that belief. What's it been like seeing some of those former? Co- so again, a couple episodes ago, we had a friend of yours, uh, former colleague Anthony Dismuke, on the show. What's it been like, kind yeah. of seeing those chefs finally get that voice, and also seeing food media be like, "Yeah, we fucked up, and we need to do a better job of giving everyone these voices, not just celebrating the same kind of six people." Yeah, it's about fucking time. That's all I have to say. You know, <laughs> I mean, I could say a whole lot more, but you know, um, Anthony Dismuke, he was. Uh, he was a, a very, very good employee of mine. And then through his employment, we were able to develop a, a special relationship. Um, and then we were able to leave on terms of friendship instead of an employee employer relationship. Um, and we've, you know, I, I have actually had uh, talks with him face to face about being a black dude and live in and, and how he has encountered racism um, and, and let him kind of expand on his own experiences. Um, and it was like, uh, there were so many times that I tried to encourage him to, to go down that direction, you know, because he has like a, a Creole uh, background, mm-hmm. right? Um, and if, if he was ever to make something for, for journeyman's when he worked with us, um, a lot of times I would, I, I really, really tried to encourage him. If he tried to do a French dish, I would let him, but you know, I really wanted to see his spirit come out. And there was this one dish that he decided to do that embodied both who he was as a person, where he was as a, and where he was as a cook. And then where he was cooking, which was journeyman's, you know, so he put together this seafood boil for an entree course for journeyman's that was like homey and understandable and flavor profile, but modern in approach. Um, And I just, I thought it was beautiful because you could see a glimmer in his eye and you could see that something sparked in him to really feel like he found himself. Yeah, And when I see all these guys that haven't really had the opportunity to speak up or they've had the opportunity and maybe been pushed down and now they're speaking up, it's really, it's really something special, dude. And that kind of goes back. Um, this is another conversation that Olivia, and I had that 
that kind of fell underneath the umbrella of, am I really needed right now? Um, I, I take a, a little bit of a hiatus when it came to marketing, mm-hmm. you know, when, when all this was happening, I just, I stopped for a minute and tried not to flood media, the social media grounds with posts about Sila all the time. You know, of course, as a business, I had to make a couple just to sell some tickets for a dinner so I can, you know, make some money and help my wife out so we can pay rent and, yeah. and buy some groceries. Um, but I really tried not to flood the market um, in order to to alleviate the, the, the noise. So when you're, and for people out there who don't really understand how social media works, the algorithms are not your friend. They don't, they do not work for the people. They, they seem to, and you like certain things and your posts come up, but you tend to see a lot of the same stuff. And so you really have to know how to work your tags and your posts and your verbiage and your, your integrations and your, your how you interact with the social media world for your posts to get the most views or recognition. And so if I could at least not do any posts on my page and alleviate one of millions of pages of noise, um, then that's, that's what I would, I tried to do. So completely. I've seen a lot of people try to do kind of that similar thing and just try to take away some of the noise. Um, which has been interesting and, and yeah, just rough times all around as someone who obviously, um, like we kind of started at the, the start of the show, cut their teeth in California, really kind of established themselves. Um, and then, you know, selfishly, cause you want to start a family, damn it, you left. Um, how is California or how is Orange County's uh, cuisine? Like how is kind of their hospitality industry going? I mean, do you think that things were trending in a good direction before everything shut down or, what were your thoughts kind of on Orange County as someone who's now on the outside looking in? Uh, so there, there is like a good and a bad, you know, I think, um, at least in some instances when I was there, Orange County was trying so hard to be better than LA. Um, and that was actually a conversation at, at a lot of, of dinner tables that I had had about the, the, the dining scene behind the orange curtain. Um, for those of you guys who are li- listening and don't know what the orange curtain is, it's like the divide between LA and orange County. Um, it's good. You know, there are people who are doing solid food and really do it the right way. And their, their restaurants are good. Their approach to hospitality is good. They have a solid team in place. And then there are places that don't. And I mean, I, the obviousness of the, the delineation between the two is like a lot of the places who don't really live up to those standards are commercial, corporate, have many locations or at least a good handful of them where eventually it starts to disappear. And it's, it's more of a product and a business than it is uh, an experience or, or hospitality uh, focused. But there are places, I mean, I, I'll tell you, like one of my favorite cooks um, in Orange County is Frankie, Frank DeLoach. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's why it's okay to swear on this show because I had him a couple episodes ago. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that would have been like beeps every three seconds. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, but he's just, he's just such a good fucking cook. Yeah. That like wherever he goes, like I, I would want to eat. Unfortunately, I, I had very few opportunities to, but once, uh, we were closer to moving and he was moved on to Bello, uh, with Sandro, who's another, he's just a freaking great guy. Um, and I, dude, I was at Bello one to two times a week for like weeks in a row. Uh, cause his food is just that good. So it's good to see Agreed. like you guys have spots that are like that, that just shine so bright. Um, I think another place that somebody's doing uh, good stuff is, is Greg over at Harley. 
yep. or at least was before everything, all the closures. I don't know how he's doing now. Uh, at the time um, of this recording, Harley has reopened for takeout. They have trimmed down their menu to like just kind of hearty stuff, like kick-ass burgers. They're still doing their bolognese, but yeah, I agree. I think I love what Greg does over at okay. Harley. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like there, there are pockets of it, just like they're like even here too. Um, there's a lot of, I can draw a lot of comparisons to where I'm at now here in Florida and where we were in, in Orange County. Um, and if you, if you actually do look at it, Orange County, depending on the, the specifics is still a little bit further behind than LA as far as how forward moving a cuisine can go before it's, it's deemed too much for the average dining clientele. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's still like a couple of years behind, which is fine um, for now because even Fort Myers here, we're, we're a little bit behind. You know, if, if I think that Orange County is like two to three years behind LA, I would like to say that, you know, Fort Myers is about two years behind Orange County. Um, you know, but we, we also have spurts here. Like, uh, there's, there's a local restaurant that, that just started doing really dope Korean food. Um, you, you didn't see anywhere like that, um, for a long time, but in Orange County, that's all over the place. You know, uh, you have whole like Korean shopping centers that have different types of, you know, restaurants and was a BCD tofu house over there. Yep. Uh, you have like H Mart and it's got its own stuff in there. And I mean, Orange County's food scene, when you really, really put it under a microscope, there are a lot of chefs, um, who are doing cool shit. The issue is that there is just such a saturation in the market that they are less likely to succeed. Uh, who was it? Uh, uh, fucking Craig strong, man. Yeah. Like, Ocean at that fool came out of nowhere and then left like, out of nowhere. Yeah, you know, like that fool has skills. And then he just had to close his restaurant because, you know, whether it was location just wasn't appropriate for what he was trying to do and maybe he wanted to elevate it, but the clientele maybe just wanted a uh, grouper sandwiches or whatever, whatever it is that, you know, they wanted over there. Mm-hmm. Um, it just sucks. I hate seeing, you know, uh, uh, small restaurants that are, are owned by the chef or like just a partnership that are really trying to do something special that close because those are the restaurants that should stay open. Nobody needs a freaking uh, chop house. Nobody needs uh, El Torito. You know that we don't, we don't need all those spots, man. Mm-hmm. We need, we need little restaurants that kind of create that, that network, that fabric of our community. Uh, we need those places to succeed or else then what we just kind of become this typical restaurant scene, you know, where you can, I can tell you what they're going to put on the menu. There's going to be tacos. They're going to have a salmon poke bowl probably with, uh, grains, like whole grains, not that white rice because whole grains are so much better for me. Um, salmon over lentils, you know, a little bit block if you're lucky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, like the steak frites, but it's going to be like a choice cut, you know, crappy end cut strip loin. That's kind of chewy and you're going to get maitre d butter. And it's like, and we don't need restaurants like that no more. Well, we no need joy. restaurants that are no joy in that. Yeah. And you can't exactly. learn from that. So, you can't continue these conversations. So is there any yeah, chance that uh, orange County is ever going to get graced with a silo pop up? Oh, for sure, man. I, I can say that, you know, once this the COVID experience kind of dies down and traveling is a little bit easier. And um, I've actually been in contact with uh, a good buddy of mine. We've kind of joked about it. Um, and then even uh, the owner, one of my friends who owned the Hotel Fullerton, you know, he, he opened me back with with wide arms saying that if I ever wanted to come back, he'd certainly help. Um, you know, we joked about it, Sandro and I at Bello, um, during one of our many dinners to, to show up there. Um, I'd love to do a dinner with uh, Kenny Seliger. 
yeah. uh, who was the chef over at Henry's. That's super, a see, like super talented. That's another super talented. That's another fucking loss for your guys's area, man. Like, and they just couldn't sustain it. COVID hit, and then you know that space was just so big. I'm hoping. I talked with him months ago, and. You know, I'm hoping that if he stays in the area, that he can do something that's small and intimate. If you ever saw that guy's like R and D test shelves with all his little experiments going on, man, that fool was sharp, super sharp, and a good cook. Yeah, I completely agree. That was a that was a rough one to see happen. So yeah, you know, maybe eventually. We'll do a, a combination of Sila meets trapdoor dining, him and I. Who knows? <laughs> that would be a heck of a throw a combo. I would love that. Well, Zach, look, man, I don't want to keep you going too much longer. Um, if people want to find you on social media, if they want to find Sila, where can they do that? Oh, yeah. Go to at restaurant Sila um, for Instagram. You know, check out our website, restaurantsila.com. You know, subscribe for emails to see like if we're going to pop up over an OC or if you live, you know, in Fort Myers and, and you hear this and you want to check it out do that. Uh, Facebook is just restaurant Sila, man, or you follow me at Zach Kearson. And I should say, mention Sila is S Y L a. See you later alligator. Yeah. That's the best way to remember it, man. Acronym. See you later alligator. That's <laughs> Sila right there. Dude, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the time. Uh, this has been absolutely phenomenal. I miss your food. I miss your face. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that things sound at least like they're going well for you in Florida. And I, I hope they continue to, obviously, as you guys settle in and, and start up that family. Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate it. I appreciate you, you know, thinking of me to have one of these conversations. Uh, you know, makes my ego feel a little bit good. I'm glad you gave me the platform to say some of the things that I've, I've been wanting to say and and thinking about, and I appreciate what you're doing for, um, other chefs and other cooks, you know, and putting, putting voices on here that need to be heard. Like, uh, like Mr. Dismuke, man, that's, that makes my heart happy, dude. It's good. It's doing just, it's the things that need to be done. So I'm happy to do it. So fuck yeah. All right, my brother, be well. All right, dude. And I will hopefully see you soon. Sounds good, man. All right. Take care, man. That was Chef Zach Gearson, formerly of Orange County. God, I wish you'd come back. I miss his food. I really do. If you'd experienced it, if you have, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you haven't, shame on you. We told you you should. Regardless, thank you so much to Zach for the time. Thank you to Allie for the music. Um, definitely go check out what he's doing. Even if you can't get to Fort Myers to eat his food, follow him because he's a great guy to follow, a great resource to have, um, and somebody who just I learn so much from every time I talk with him and experiences food and everything else he's got going on so he's got some really really wonderful stories and experiences to share and i'm so grateful for him for taking the time and doing it today so hope you enjoyed this episode remember uh for more information you can go to patreon.com slash the best seats go to the best check out blog posts there should be some new info coming soon including some cool new rumors about where some chefs are going to land what some people are doing etc cetera, etc cetera. so anyways thank you to chef zach gearson i'll see you in the next episode take care the Best Seats Podcast is an original production of The Best Seats. It is written, edited, produced, and owned by myself, Crawford McCarthy, founder and owner of The Best Seats. It is recorded in the Liso Viejo, California. It is subsidized through generous donations through patreon.com slash the best seats. The following are names that have subscribed at the highest tier, aka norm status, and thus allow me to produce the show each and every episode. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Here are the supporters. Katie Cassie, Eric Lutz, Serena Warino, Talia Samuels, Cheryl McCarthy. Thank you for your support.